we were more aggressive about developing our properties and production here in the country, we would have significantly less pollution than are being done in other parts of the world, which is what's so crazy. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about a resurgence in domestic mining and what that means for our changing energy landscape. Supply chains have wreaked havoc on the availability of everything from batteries to solar panels. It seems like everything is 18 months out. My guess says a lot of these minerals, like copper, lithium, cobalt, nickel, uranium, are sourced outside the hemisphere. We have them here, but the resources are severely underdeveloped at this point. Add a full-out embargo from Russia or China, and our way of life could grind to a halt. He takes us around the world explaining where we get all these raw materials and where they can be found locally. For instance, you Angelinos taking a trip to Vegas may not know you passed the single greatest deposit of rare earth metals in the country. My guest also takes a very sober assessment of what the earth can actually produce to make this clean energy transition a reality. The irony is that a lot of the solutions for a greener planet will require an unsustainable amount of raw materials to get there. My guest makes some pretty bold comments about electric vehicles, for instance. He isn't wrong. It's this tightening geopolitical pressure, combined with an unsatiable appetite for these resources, that makes sustainably mining these minerals a chief concern in the years to come. My guest today is Howard Crosby, founder and executive director of Gold Express Mines, a mineral resource developer. Howard is based in California. The company formed just two years ago, but Howard brings a career's worth of mining experience to the interview. Gold Express currently has 10 projects in the works, including gold, silver, lead, zinc, copper, and uranium. I was interested to learn where we are in the United States on mining, and I wasn't disappointed. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Howard Crosby. Howard Crosby, founder and executive director of Gold Express Mines. And Howard, two years of supply chain issues is enough for a lot of us to go. What can we source locally? You're investing in several mines in the Western United States. Is this a new day for mining? Well, I think to some degree it is. We took the position two years ago when we founded the company that the wild spending spree that the government was on during the COVID era, which has continued into the modern day, has opened up the possibility for a real bull market in a wide variety of commodities. And we thought that having a portfolio of projects in the Western United States, which is still considered a pretty safe jurisdiction, would be a very prudent thing to do. And so that's what we embarked on. And we've been pretty successful in building up a nice portfolio of properties that are being developed for gold, silver, copper as the three principal metals. But we've also picked up some very interesting uranium properties in the Colorado Plateau. We think there's a new day coming for uranium as well. And I think for your listeners that are interested in energy, we think that copper is probably the ultimate energy metal and for reasons that I can discuss. But I mean, even Goldman Sachs has come out with a report in which they've stated that copper is the new oil. So, you know, we shall see. 
Well, tell us about copper. That's a little bit of a surprise. I think most people are thinking of lithium. They're thinking of things like nickel and cobalt. Let's start with copper, obviously, for conductors well, yeah, and all that. Yeah, copper is the most important industrial metal by far. And for electrification, it's essential for anything. It's the most conductive metal there is other than silver. And obviously, we're not going to wire everything with silver. If you just start with the idea that we're somehow going to undertake this fantasy of transforming our transportation fleet to electric cars and trucks, then you have to realize that an electric car uses two to four times as much copper as a conventional car. And then that doesn't even discuss all the copper that's going to be required for charging stations and other infrastructure that would be required to support electrification. And having said that, there just isn't enough copper to go around. I mentioned earlier Goldman Sachs calling copper the new oil. The reality is that there's been a report put out that in order to meet the projected demand for copper between now and the year 2050, we would have to discover, develop, and produce a new Escondido every year for the next 28 years. Escondida is the largest copper mine in the world. It was found 30 years ago and we haven't found anything that big since. So it's simply not possible to imagine that we will have enough copper to meet the demand even at a substantially enhanced price. I think Goldman is calling for a doubling of the copper price in the next 18 to 24 months and even that won't chase out enough copper. So it doesn't really matter what battery metal ends up being the winner, whether it's lithium, the lithium-ion batteries that are used now in the Teslas that require cobalt, manganese, and other metals, or whether it's some of the new technology involving zinc batteries and vanadium things that are being looked at, they're all going to have to be wired with copper. So it doesn't matter which battery technology wins, copper is the big winner. Yeah, I'm personally a little bit more favorable towards hydrogen fuel cells. I've said this on the podcast a few times. Yeah, yeah there are some exciting things with hydrogen fuel cells, and guess what? You have to wire them with copper, too. <laughs> so it's copper no matter which way you look, right? No matter what you do. I mean, look, yeah. modern society can't exist without it. We can't have electricity in our homes. We can't drive our cars. We can't power our cell phones. There's nothing we can do without copper. And because we had a long downturn in the exploration sector for the last seven or eight, nine years, there aren't a lot of new projects that are advanced. So anywhere in the world, we've cut the grade in order to expand the tonnage of some of the existing big copper mines. It just isn't going to be enough. So copper is the ultimate energy and battery metal, without a doubt. Yeah, let's expand on that. Get us up to date, Howard. How much had domestic mining fallen off? And were we sourcing more of these minerals overseas? And where were we getting them from? Okay, well, let's start with lithium. Pretty much all of the lithium that's been produced until recently has come out of a couple of different places, but primarily Chile. Chile's got some very prolific lithium salt mines in central Chile. We have some here in the U.S. We've got one mine in production now and several others that are in the permitting stage. I don't really think lithium is going to be the thing that would ultimately be in shortfall because there are massive lithium deposits in South America, particularly in Bolivia, where nobody can do business right now. But Bolivia has enough lithium to supply the world's maximum demand for the next 500 years. It's just they have a government nobody can work with. But there's good lithium deposits in Chile. There's some in Argentina. We have good lithium deposits in Nevada. Some are being developed now. One called Thacker Pass, which is a very large deposit, which would be northwest of Winnemucca is under development. There's some really nice looking lithium deposits in California. There's some things being done around the Salton Sea by a couple of major companies, which the Salton Sea is kind of an ecological disaster area, but there's a lot of lithium potentially there. I don't see lithium as the shortfall problem. In the near term, the big problem is cobalt. We produce zero cobalt in this country. 100% of all of our cobalt comes from Russia or the Kazakhstans or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Congo produces well over 50% of the world's cobalt. 
cobalt. And I would suspect that very few of your Tesla owners realize that by buying a Tesla, they're supporting child labor in appalling conditions in the Congo because fatality rates among the children that mine that stuff in the Congo are astronomically high and terrible working conditions. And that's for the near term where the cobalt's going to come from. And of course, we also need cobalt for other things besides electric car batteries. We got to have cobalt for jet aircraft engines and some other high specialty steel kinds of things. But in this country, the only cobalt that we know of is in Lemhi County, Idaho. And there's a couple of projects that are not very advanced. They've faced some environmental difficulties getting moved forward. And even if they were to get up and going, they can't supply anywhere near enough cobalt for the demand that's currently envisioned for these lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Cobalt. I asked a guest, the company was Electrovia. They're a lithium-ion battery manufacturer in Canada. And I was asking him about the Cobalt issue. He says that he believes that a lot of nickel is being subbed in for Cobalt, but that isn't going to alleviate our demand for Cobalt, right? No, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert in that area. I do know that we don't have any nickel in this country either that's in production. The only place that has substantial nickel deposits is northern Minnesota in what's called the Iron Range up by Duluth. And there's some big, big polymetallic nickel deposits up there that also contain platinum and palladium, but they've undergone tremendous environmental opposition to develop them. Canada does have significant nickel production, but we don't. Ironically, the most nickel-rich place in the world is an island in the South Pacific called New Caledonia. Caledonia, which is basically an island that sits on giant nickel deposits. <laughs> but that's just a quirk of fate. Yeah, it's kind of like the Black Panther movie, Wakanda. <laughs> yeah. So we've kind of gone around the bases here. I believe you also have some uranium mining. And I think yes, that's a little bit different. Yes, we picked up some very interesting uranium deposits in the Colorado Plateau in western Colorado near the Utah border. And these are properties that are owned by the United States Department of Energy. They own them as a strategic asset of the United States. And we've picked up leases on these properties. And they're very advanced. They used to be operated by Union Carbide. There's a historic resource of high-grade uranium vanadium on these properties. But if we look at the uranium picture worldwide, and particularly here in the United States, the United States commercial reactors currently consume 48 million pounds of uranium per annum. That's the consumption needed to drive the electric generation from our nuclear power plants, which account for about 16 or 17 percent of U.S. electricity production. And of that 48 million pounds that's needed in this country annually, we produce at the moment zero pounds. We import 100 percent of our uranium. Now, there are about three or four projects that are permitted but mothballed that could be restarted and collectively they could produce about 5 million pounds of uranium if they were all operating at peak capacity. But as it is, we get almost all of our uranium is imported from Russia and from Kazakhstan and other places like that. There's quite a bit of uranium production in Niger, in Africa, but Kazakhstan and Russia are by far the world's largest producers. And in fact, when we had this recent embargo on Russian oil and other products from Russia, we secretly made sure that we did not embargo Russian uranium because we would be completely and totally screwed without it. And so in order to restart our domestic uranium industry and bring it up to snuff, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done. And we feel like these properties that Gold Express has in the Colorado Plateau are probably sooner path to production than almost anything else that we have. And, and of course, we could only barely make a dent in the demand for uranium. And what's scary is that the Chinese are in the process of building, I think it's something like 28 or 29 new nuclear power plants that are going to consume all of the uranium 
that's produced in Kazakhstan, the world's largest producer, and a lot of Russian uranium. So we're going to get choked out of the market here pretty fast if we don't develop our own resources in that area. It's very short-sighted on the part of our policymakers not to be rapidly pushing the development of nuclear power plants if, in fact, we believe we have an existential crisis in climate change. No doubt. You mentioned that you think the uranium mines might be the fastest one to come online. I believe uranium is mined with solution mining a lot of the times. Yeah. Now there's different ways. The ones that are out there are what's called ISL in situ leach. There's projects in Wyoming and Texas. Our properties are underground mines. They're higher grade. They're mined underground. They're roll front deposits where you'd either go down a shaft or sink a winds or an adit and get into the deposits and mine them underground. And then you conventionally process them in a mill and make a yellow cake concentrate, which is then further refined. So it's different than solution mining. How fast can you bring that online? We think we could go from where we are today through permitting with the state of Colorado. Because it's a DOE property, the federal is eager to have it done. So I think assuming we can get a contract with the one and only uranium mill that exists in the United States right now, which is not far away in southern Utah, we could possibly be in production within 24 to 36 months. Wasn't there a controversy with the Clintons or something about uranium deposits? It was oh, well, a- actually, I know a lot about that. Yeah. We had a company back in 2005 called High Plains Uranium, and we had some very advanced uranium properties in Wyoming, and we sold the company to a company called Energy Metals. Energy Metals was a U.S. domestic uranium development company, and shortly thereafter, Energy Metals was sold to Uranium One, which was bought by the Russians and the Clintons. And so basically, the old uranium properties that we used to have are now owned by the Russians through their acquisition of Uranium One, and the Clintons made a fortune on that. Is that uranium going back to Russia from here? Well, it's in Wyoming, and the project is currently mothballed. It's one of the ones I mentioned that could be in production quickly, but it's currently not producing. But it's owned by the Russians now. When did they stop that? Was that after the controversy got coverage? Well, it was really after the uranium price dropped. There's a big drop in the uranium price from $60 a pound down to about $28 a pound, and they shut those mines in due to economic reasons. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about regulation. Is it easy to permit a mine, especially when we're in such demand of all these? No, it's surprisingly in spite of the fact that they talk a good game about wanting to source U.S. production between the various federal agencies that are involved with anything that's on federal land. It's quite difficult. Forest service land is even more difficult than BLM land. And it depends on what state you're in, what region you're in, what office of the federal agencies you're dealing with. But it can be quite cumbersome. For instance, we have a gold mine in Montana that it's taken us over a year just to get a drilling permit on it, just to drill some holes to test the quality of the ore. The timeline to production in one of these things from the time you have an ore body that you can quantify to get it actually operating and permitted can be anywhere from five to 10 years or more. Any places that are easy to get along with? There's a lot of mining in Wyoming. Yeah, Wyoming's pretty good space, but a lot of it's federal land, so you still have to deal with the federal agencies. Probably the easiest place to get something going fast is if you're on private land in the state of Idaho, where you don't have federal involvement, and the state is quite easy, particularly if you're operating on private land. Patented mining claims are private land. You can move very quickly, but that would be by far the best place in terms of speed of getting into operation. Yeah. (laughs) Who would have thought? Howard, we talk a lot about rare earth minerals. I think there was talk that there were a lot of these rare earth minerals come from China of all places. (laughs) What about that? Are there any minerals that we have to have that just are not available in this hemisphere? Well, we have to have all of the rare earth minerals. If you want to use one of these, these cell phones, they're totally dependent on it. Plasma TVs and other high-tech instruments require a lot of rare earths. And some of them are names that are hard to pronounce like presidium and neodymium and 
hafnium and rhenium and whatever. We get it all from China right now. 99% of the world's rare earths. China cornered the market in rare earths. We had a really nice, profitable, operational rare earth deposit called Mountain Pass right on the California-Nevada border in California, right off I-15. If you drive from LA to Las Vegas, you go right by it as you approach the Nevada line from the California side. A number of years ago, I kind of lost track of how many, but the Chinese dramatically cut the prices on rare earths so as to dominate the market in a monopoly, and they put the mountain pass out of business. So we're sitting there with a large reserves of rare earths, but the mine shut down due to the uneconomic nature of it during the Chinese push to gain a monopoly on rare earths, which they have done. So at some point, point at some price level, theoretically, that deposit could be reopened. And there's another really good rare earth deposit called Round Top in West Texas that is being developed. Whether these could supply all of the rare earth needs that we have in the United States, I don't know. They could certainly supply some if they both got operational, that's for sure. So we're not in quite as bad a pickle for rare earths as we are for cobalt. Yeah, this is all very interesting. So tell me about the mines that you guys have invested in. Do they already exist? Did you have the deposits? Do they already have the mine cart and the rail going into the... <laughs> well, yeah, our flagship project is what we call Yellow Band in southwestern Montana. And that is a property that has existing workings. It has uh, historic resources of over 300,000 ounces of gold. We've done some underground repair. We're waiting for final permits from the Forest Service to start a 10,000 ton bulk sample. So that property is advanced and ready for production within the next year, we hope. We've got a very advanced copper project in Southern Idaho called Cuprum, which was an operating copper mine. It was an open pit operated back in the 70s and they didn't chase the ore body underground. We've been drilling it. We think there's a substantial potential for a lot of underground copper resource. And then we've got the uranium things, which are very advanced. Uh, we're doing what's called an SK-1300, which is the SEC version of a Canadian 43101 to quantify the value of the resource so we could be used in a prospectus if we went out to raise money on it. So we've got a lot of projects, a lot to keep us busy. None of these sound like projects where you just stepped onto it from another owner, right? You're either reactivating mine or these might be quote unquote greenfield mine, right? No, we you haven't bought right. anything that was operating, but we've got a pretty strict set of criteria that we look at for anything. You know, we want it to be in a jurisdiction where there's not going to be massive environmental opposition. We want to stick to things that we know. We're not going to be trying to find lithium deposits, for instance. We don't understand lithium, so we're sticking with base metals and precious metals and uranium, which I started out my career with United Nuclear in the uranium business way back in the early 80s. We were a big uranium producer at the time from an underground mine in New Mexico. And we've done a lot of work in uranium over the years. My brother-in-law, he was the former assistant secretary of energy for the United States in charge of all nuclear development. So I understand that business pretty well. So Howard, who else is investing in this domestic mining? Are our ears about to start burning when we hear that there's a lot of foreign companies getting into this space and sending our minerals other places? <laughs> well, that's a good question. There's a lot of pursuit. Lithium is hot right now, so a lot of companies are out there pursuing lithium deposits. What a lot of people don't understand is the difficulty producing lithium from a brine salt. I mean, it takes 500,000 gallons of water to produce one ton of lithium. And most of these deposits are in arid areas, desert California or desert Nevada, where water is at a premium. Lithium is just something I would want to stay away from. But there's a lot of interest in it because the price has tripled in the last year. The price of other metals have stayed as a result of the strong, strong dollar situation that we have had until this morning. <laughs> 
Right. Howard, we talk a lot about the need for these minerals to fight climate change for environmental purposes, but there can be other environmental concerns to mining in and of itself. Are there some parts of the world that are better, let's say, stewards of the earth than others? I'd assume the United States is some of the strictest environmental mining standards on earth. So, Well, exactly. And and that's not only true of, of minerals, it's also true of oil and gas, which is what's so ridiculous about the administration's current policy of limiting drilling on federal land in the United States, where we have, you know, really good environmental restrictions. We don't flare the gas into the outer space. And the same thing is true in mining. Like I mentioned, the Congo, if we were to fast track the only cobalt we know about in Lemhi County, Idaho, and fast track it to production, we wouldn't be using nine-year-old children underground in appalling conditions to mine it. We would have MSHA, Mine Safety and Health Administration standards would apply. We wouldn't be committing the kind of pollution that is endemic in places like the Congo and other parts of the world. If we were more aggressive about developing our properties and production here in the country, we would have significantly less pollution than are being done in other parts of the world, which is what's so crazy. That's right. Can we get to a point where the supply chain for these types of materials is sustainable, where we can recycle most of the metals in a closed loop fashion? No. Obviously, some metals can be recycled very nicely. Aluminum is very readily recyclable. We already recycle our aluminum pop cans. Zinc, how are you going to recycle zinc? Most of zinc is used as galvanizing. If you didn't have zinc to galvanize the coating on your car, it had rust through in a couple of years. But when your car reaches the end of its life and it goes to the junkyard, yeah, they can recycle the steel, but how are they going to recycle the little bit of zinc coating on the outside of that car? Well, you got to get it from new mines. A lot of copper can be recycled, but then again, the copper demand is so great. And then there are some circumstances where it's not economically feasible to figure out how to recycle the copper. Obviously, you can't recycle uranium. You burn it to fuel. And then when you start talking about silver, back in the 1990s, they used to talk about, well, the silver price is going to be doomed because we're going to develop something called digital imaging for photography. 50% of industrial silver demand in 1990 was used in photographic film. The photographic film industry was extremely good at recycling the silver and getting it back into circulation. In the nearness of the new century, digital imaging took over. There's no more silver demand for film. During that time, industrial silver demand has grown and there's hundreds of new applications for silver. Water purification systems to plasma TV, to these cell phones. When you get rid of your cell phone, there's a tiny amount of silver in this that they're not going to bother to recycle it. It's too expensive to get the little tiny bit of silver that's in this out of it. So most of the new industrial applications for silver, it's not economically feasible to recycle it, which is why I think ultimately silver will be poised for an enormous price run. The case is Some things, yes, we can recycle and probably maintain sustainability largely by recycling. Other metals, not so much. Well, if we want to talk about uranium recycling, I ask everyone to check out my Curio episode. It's a couple episodes back, uh, which was with Ed McGinnis. You mentioned that your brother-in-law was at DOE with nuclear, so was Ed. And it looks like that company's getting a little bit of traction about domestic nuclear fuel recycling. So, Yeah, I mean, you can do a reprocessing, right? But the uranium ore itself can't be reprocessed. Well, if you can't recycle it, what about being more efficient about what the mining waste? And I interviewed a few episodes back the CEO of Inth Cycle, who's working on a way to mine precious metals out of the mining waste, the tailings, if you will. What's the potential to mine what we need out of this? It seems like to me there's a lot of waste in mining and possibly there's some ways to recover those minerals. Yeah. 
Sure. There are some areas where that's possible. A lot of the reasons people look at tailings, and there's a reason why there's still some mineral contained in the tailings. It's because the metallurgy of the stuff, it wasn't possible to recover any more of it. Reprocessing of old mine tailings and mill tailings is something that could only contribute a very, very small amount of the needed requirement for metals. It's not going to make a big dent. It'll contribute a little bit and that's it. Yeah. So Howard, tell us a little bit how this works. So basically you mine minerals and then it goes through a broker, right? You never sell directly to an end user like a Tesla, right? Not normally. No. The exception would be back when I was with United Nuclear, we had a contract with Virginia Electric Power. And so we produced the uranium and sold it directly to the end user. But that's unusual. Most of the markets, let's use Yellow Band as an example. When we produce gold, it'll go through a process where it's stripped onto carbon and we sell the carbon loaded with gold to a refinery and they pay us a check. And what happens to the gold from there, I have no idea. Same thing with copper. We do solvent extraction, electro winning. We would produce a copper cathode and sell it to a metals exchange and that'd be it. We wouldn't know where it ended. We're not going to sell it to a copper wire maker, for instance. So Howard, you've listed off a lot of your projects, mines for gold, silver, copper, zinc, uranium, lead was another one. What else do you think you guys would like to get into? Oh, I think we've got our plate full. I love what we're doing. I love the space we're in. I love some of the projects that we've got. I think the wind is going to be in our sails over the next few years because of the demand for resources going forward, particularly if we continue to pursue this electrification strategy for transportation. The people that think electric cars are green, God bless them, they're not but let them think that. It's only going to be good for our business. Last question. The gold mines, when it opens, do you give out any free samples? Sure. Just come by the portal. We'll be handing them out. We'll give you a chunk of rock. (laughs) Good deal. I'll be there. (laughs) Howard, I'm going to finish the lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Natural gas is critical. We shouldn't be wasting natural gas because it's essential for worldwide food production. Without natural gas fertilizers, the universe would starve. For us to cut off, drilling for natural gas is suicidal. Crude oil. Crude oil will be the dominant basis for the economy for the next hundred years, without a doubt. We've got to have oil for all kinds of things, way beyond energy, but certainly we've got to have it to power aircraft and mining equipment and farm equipment and everything else totally dependent on oil and oil-based derivatives like diesel. Nuclear. It's the only way to generate substantial amount of firm power using carbon-free source. So if you believe in global warming, you better be a big fan of nuclear. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. Coal will be an important part of the mix. As you can see, the Germans are restarting their coal plants so they don't freeze to death. Coal is a reliable source of energy. Wind. Wind is a fallacy. It's environmentally degrading, kills a lot of birds, doesn't produce firm power, costs a lot, and produces very little, and uh, doesn't produce when you need it. Solar. Solar is going to need an awful lot of minerals, a lot of silver, a lot of things, and it doesn't produce firm power. It's good for certain things, but it's not going to be a reliable source of electrical generation anytime in the near future. Biofuels. Good where they work, they can be added, but like subsidizing the use of biofuels as an additive to gasoline in the form of ethanol is a waste of money. Hydroelectric. Hydroelectric is a wonderful source of power. It's clean, it's carbon-free, it produces electricity. It's relatively reliable, except for periods of drought. Unfortunately, we've pretty much tapped all the hydro that we can. Geothermal. I wish we were Iceland. We could be electric energy independent on geothermal energy. They run the whole island on geothermal. It produces 95% of their power requirements. Unfortunately, our geothermal endowment in the United States is limited to a few places in Nevada and California. Energy storage. Well, that's going to require a lot of vanadium, so I'm all for it. We've got a lot of vanadium in our Colorado Plateau mine, so go for it. Energy storage. You're going to need big vanadium batteries. Energy efficiency. 
always a good idea, but we should do more of it. But it isn't going to obviate the need for power and electricity. I can't charge my cell phone with energy storage. And then finally, fusion power. We've been tantalized with the idea of nuclear fusion for a long time, and I think we'll continue to be tantalized by the possibility of nuclear fusion for a long time yet. Yeah. Also uses a lot of interesting minerals there. Yeah, the of course. <laughs> All right. Howard Cosby, Gold Express Mines, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to be with you uh, anytime. Love to do it. That was Howard Crosby, founder and executive director of Gold Express Mines, a mining resource developer with projects based in the West. I want to thank Howard for his time as well as Romana Lakhanwala at Stir Communications for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Strawn Stroop at Stroop loops that wraps up episode 152 be sure to join us next week when we discuss what it takes to break into the lng market until then i'm jay downhower we'll see you next time